pray and then we'll, we'll get going. So Mark 129. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew. So this morning we're going to unpack really Jesus' first healing of a physical ailment in the gospel. Last week we talked about Jesus casting out a demon and preaching in the synagogue. But this morning I really want to show you as we work through the passage that we're all in need of healing. It's not some special condition of this person or any other story in the Gospels. And ultimately, Jesus is the only effective remedy to our sickness. And he's not just the remedy, but as God the Father, he's the doctor who ordered the remedy. And then as healed people, we're called and able to respond in particular ways that really reflect the character of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we ask you to be here with us. We ask you to to send the Holy Spirit to, to rest on us, to work and move amongst us. We pray that the Holy Spirit will convict hearts both of people who know you and people who don't. Lord, bring us to a place where we understand that we are sick, that sin has is, is overtaken our bodies and we're in need of healing, we're in need of rescue. I pray that the Word would speak for me and it wouldn't be anything that I say, but through your grace and your love for us that she was pray all this in your son's name. So, before we get started, I really want to hit on something that's not kind of the main point of the passage, but I feel like if I don't tie up a loose end here, uh, that somebody will come and ask, why didn't you talk about this? Um, so, at the end of the passage, Mark, 30, Mark 1, 33 and 34, it says that Jesus heals many and casts out many demons. And it says when he casts them out, that he would not permit them to speak because they knew. And I just want to touch on maybe a couple motivations that might be in play for why Jesus would say, say to them, don't speak, don't, don't say anything about your own. The first that we see from the text is that he wouldn't allow them to speak because it says they knew him. Uh, and just imagine if you could, a bunch of demons going around proclaiming the arrival of the Messiah. Uh, I don't know if that reflects well as it was a PR thing. Uh, Jesus, I think, really wanted to reveal himself in the time and place and in the manner that the Father desired and had planned for the beginning. Such reason number one. Secondly, Jesus knew that having demons proclaiming him as the Christ would probably cause problems with the Pharisees later on. Uh, he already had plenty of problems with them. Uh, but it would present an opportunity for the Pharisees to come and say, Jesus, you're Satan's ally, aren't you? Uh, and so he doesn't want that to happen. And then finally, I think it's a further display of Jesus' authority over the physical and the spiritual world seen in the last story last week that he casts out demons. But now we also see that he has the authority to tell them when to speak and when not to speak. So that's three possibilities. If you have questions, if you want to talk about it more, come talk to me or you can go to David and let him answer our questions. But with those three kind of possibilities out there for why Jesus didn't want the demons telling about it, let's go ahead and move on to really what the bulk of our passage is. And that's really Jesus' cure of Simon's mother. And really, I think this week's passage is, in a lot of ways, part two of, of last week's sermon. And in fact, if you look at a lot of the commentaries, uh, the commentaries actually lump verses 21 through 34 together. And so what did we talk about last week as kind of a summary? Uh, in last week's passage, Jesus enters the synagogue, and he, he just really absolutely blows people away 
with his teaching. Right? He learned, he learned that as, he's ta- as he taught, Jesus didn't teach from commentaries or scribes or other scholars of the day, but he taught as if the authority came from himself. And obviously looking back, we have the benefit of saying, well, he's the son of God, of course he has the authority to teach for himself. But 2,000 years ago, sitting in the synagogue, this blew people away. And if that wasn't enough, a man who's possessed with a demon comes in and he's crying out to Jesus. And Jesus, again, demonstrating his authority, he casts out the demon with a spoken word. And so these two events in the synagogue really firmly established Jesus as a new authority in preaching. So what's the new thing? What are the new things that we can learn from the second part of this passage that we're covering? And this is, this is really what I want to propose to you. I want to propose to you that the healing in this passage, though in many ways it continues to reveal Jesus' authority over the physical world, it really works to give us a more complete picture of Jesus, his mission, his purpose, and his motivation. And in addition, and maybe most importantly, I think this passage reveals to us so much more about our human condition and what Jesus can and will do about that condition. So, in this passage, we're confronted with sickness, that of Simon's mother-in-law. I think more importantly, we're faced with our own sickness. We've seen him cast out demons, and now we've seen Jesus heal with a physical ailment. So what does this new healing and the other healings that Jesus performs throughout the Gospels tell us about who he is and what he's come to do? Through who Jesus is healing, a mother-in-law, friends, family, like we begin to understand more and more why he came. Jesus came to heal those who were sick and those who are sick, and he did that out of love for us. Once we see that Jesus' love for us is really what motivates him to heal us, the questions that we have to answer before we leave today are really things like, how do we respond to how does the fact that Jesus has perfectly healed us change the way that we live? So let's go ahead and dig into the passage, and as we work through it, let's remember to ask ourselves, where do you see, where do we see us in this passage? What are we learning about Jesus through this passage? And then how, as believers, are we going to respond, and how are we going to help the change in this passage? Since this is kind of the first passage with the healing of the physical sickness in Mark, I don't know not only at this specific healing, but that's certainly kind of the impetus for but, but I want to look at the general importance of healings in Mark and the rest of the Gospels in the New Testament. And I think the first question you have to ask is, why do you even think that there are healings in the Gospels and other parts of Scripture? As we learned last week, again, the healings are an exercise of Jesus' authority over the physical world. They speak to his power to create and to heal and to control and even to raise from the dead, as we'll talk about later. As Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law in this passage, and the crowd gathers outside, we're reminded that Jesus has the same authority as the Father. Second, healings often reveal some of the underlying motivations for why Jesus does ministry, why Jesus is here on earth as a man. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. And what I really want to spend the bulk of the time on is that stories of healing in the gospel are pointers toward our universal condition of this sickness. We can go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, and God created Adam and Eve to live in perfect communion with him in the Garden of Eden. He gave him complete dominion over the garden and instructed him to eat anything except for the fruit he told them that eating would bring certain death. And they did. And today, we experience the results of that original sin and rebellion. Since Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the garden, our spiritual life reeks of decay and sickness and death. And to really properly understand what Jesus is doing through these healing passages that we're doing today, we need to look more at our condition as sick people. And when you start looking at, at the Bible and Scripture, biblical authors have just littered 
pages of scripture with examples of both physically and spiritually sick people. In fact, really being spiritually sick and spiritually dead is one of the overriding motifs that we see throughout scripture from beginning to end. And you might say, well, just how, how prevalent is that motif? And if you go to the Gospels, you see Jesus almost constantly healing the sick, the sick and the possessed. In the four Gospels alone, there are 25 different cases of Jesus healing physical infirmities. And our particular story that we're looking at today is reported in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So that's three out of the four Gospels. So why are these in there? Why are we all going to get sick at some point? We all experience sickness, and we're all going to die. Is, is our physical sickness really pointing towards something else? And you might know by now, I'm going to contend that it does. Physical sickness is really a reminder that things are not as they should be with the world. And that creation, including humanity, longs for needs more than the physical world can offer. So we jump back to Adam again. After Adam ate of the fruit, God tells him, this is his punishment. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You were dust, and the dust you shall return. So there's been a curse on creation since Adam ate of the fruit. Romans 8, 19 through 21 talk more about the ramifications of the fall. And this is one of the great passages of hope in Scripture. Paul seeking to assure believers, the Roman believers, that our final hope is in Christ and he's coming to restore the earth. However, in this in-between time, between when Jesus came and when he's coming back to restore us, Paul talks about what creation in our bodies are subject to. And here he says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. Those of us who have believed and worshiped Christ as Lord already have the first fruits and benefits in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We already have the hope and the assurance that as adopted sons and daughters, given new bodies as part of a new creation. But until then, every physical ailment, every groaning that your body makes as you push it, every time that you just kind of want to do more and can't because your body is breaking down on you, that's really an inward groaning of your physical body as we wait to be the new and new creation. So physical sickness points toward our spiritual sickness and our need to be restored and made new by God through and so these physical sicknesses that we have, the spiritual sickness also needs a doctor and a healer. Except this healer of spiritual sickness that we have, he has to do more than treat the symptoms of the problem. Our spiritual issues run so much deeper and are so much more serious and real than any of the physical problems that you might experience now or 20 years down the road. And you might find it hard to believe that, that your spiritual sickness is really more pressing than some of your physical ailments, but it's true. Headaches, colds, fevers, the flu, cancer, they all pale in comparison to the disease that infects your soul. And I think some of you probably agree with me. Some of you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have been made very aware of the depth of your spiritual sickness. You cry out with Paul and so why that no one is righteous, no, not one. Others of you might sit out there and say, he's off his rocker. I'm not really that bad off. You think that you're dealing with maybe some minor spiritual sicknesses, but you're never really worse off than the, the spiritual equivalent of a physical. Program. You think that you can beat whatever whatever's wrong with you with the, 
little sleep, a little meditation, a little rest by surrounding yourself with the right types of people and the right activities. Paul begs to differ. Writing to Timothy, First Timothy 1, he says, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is Paul. This is the Pharisee of Pharisees who had all reason to boast, the guy who, who was the most righteous. And in Ephesians, he goes even further than saying he's the foremost of sinners. And he paints this picture of our spiritual state with all of humanity. He says at the beginning of chapter 2 in Ephesians that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. You want to know something about dead people? They never get better. Most of you who are between my age and maybe my parents' age have probably seen or at least heard of the cult movie, The Princess Bride. Yes. Um, so for those of you who haven't and, and don't know, there's this scene where Inigo, who's kind of the sidekick of the main protagonist, comes to rescue Wesley, who's the, the main guy. And Inigo's pretty close to positive that Wesley is dead because he hears him screaming as he's being tortured off in the distance. And so Inigo shows up at this old, scary, healing dude's house who's played by Billy Crystal, which I didn't realize for a long time. Uh, and he learns that even though Wesley looks dead, he, by all appearances, is dead, he's just mostly dead, according to Billy Crystal. Right? And, and to quote Billy Crystal's character, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well... With all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. Go through his clothes and look for loose change. And we're not mostly dead, like Wesley and the Princess Bride. We're completely dead. And so, so what do we do? What do we do then when we're sick and dead? We look for some sort of supernatural, all-powerful doctor. And who is this ultimate and supreme hero? It's Jesus. Jesus says just one chapter over in Mark 2, verse 17, that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' mission was to save sinners, the spiritually sick, to reconcile sinners to himself, to call sinners to repentance and belief, and to love sinners. Again, we'll learn later on in the book, as we get closer to the end, that Jesus himself says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for me. So, as we read the story of Simon's mother-in-law and the many being healed by Jesus, we see the authority of Jesus in all of life. But we also need to remember first, and above all, that Jesus' ultimate mission was, was to serve and give his life as a ransom for me. Jesus, through the incarnation, through becoming a man, through the cross, through the resurrection, has humbled himself. He's made himself a servant and is committed to the work of a supreme and ultimate healer. If Jesus is the ultimate healer, then, both of our physical bodies and our spiritual selves, what does this passage reveal to us about who he is as a physician, as a healer, how he practices his medicine, and what our prognosis is? So let's look at first at what happens in our passage in Mark. It says, And he came and took her, Simon's mother-in-law, by the hand, and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve her. And then later, verse 34, it says that Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. I want to look at, at five different characteristics of Jesus' healing ministry that we see from this passage and also from other healing stories throughout the gospel. The first thing that we can see from this passage is that Jesus heals instantly. The passage just says he lifted her up and the fever left her. 
There wasn't some interlude between when he lifted her up and the fever leaving. There wasn't some pill that he gave her and said, we'll swallow this and it'll feel better in a few days. When Jesus heals, it's always instant. It's, it's a binary proposition. You're sick and then you're well. And you can just look within Mark and see lots of these stories like this. Uh, Simon's mother-in-law in this story, you can go over to Mark 2 and Jesus tells the paralytic to rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and went out before them. In Mark 3, on the Sabbath, the man with a withered hand stretches out his hand, and Jesus restores it immediately. In Mark 7, Jesus says to a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment to be open, and immediately he could hear him speak. So Jesus heals instantly. Secondly, Jesus doesn't just heal instantly, he also heals completely. Simon's mother-in-law went from being bedridden, or as it says in Matthew, lying sick, to serving. This wasn't a healing where she went from being bedridden to feeling like, This was complete. It was utter defeat of the fever. Jesus, in essence, made her a new person. This idea that Jesus heals completely once and for all, again, it's not isolated to this one story. In fact, it's the M.O. of Jesus' ministry. We sang the song earlier about uh, the blind will see and the lame will walk. That comes from when John asks Jesus if Jesus is the one to come. Jesus tells the messenger to go back and tell John what he heard and saw, namely blind received their sight, and the lame walked. Lepers were cleansed, and the deaf heard, and the dead were raised up, and the poor had good news preached to them. So Jesus heals completely. But he doesn't only heal instantly and completely. So number three, his healing is available to all who would seek it. In the parallel account of this story, so if you go over to Luke 4, and read the same story about Simon's mother it says at the end of the story, now when the sun was set, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. There are other instances in Scripture that make reference to Jesus healing all who came in and all who sought healing. But what does that mean for us? I think namely it means that the healing of our souls, the remedy to our sin, is available to anyone who would seek it. So then number four, Jesus' healing ministry real diseases. Right? And you might say, what are real diseases? They're not some vague, psychological, abstract afflictions that you can kind of play off as, well, he just thinks he feels better. No, I mean, these were fever and blindness and leprosy and deafness and speech impediments. And, and beyond that, there were people who were raised from the dead. And so that's the fifth thing. Jesus raised people from the dead as part of his healing ministry. And maybe the most famous example is when Jesus comes and heals and raises Lazarus from the dead. But I want to focus for a minute on the story of Jairus' daughter that's in Mark 5. Jairus' daughter, he comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to come heal her. And as they're going, as they're going back to Jairus' house, there are all these accounts coming in that, that know it's too late. She's dead. Uh, people came and tried to convince Jesus that, Teacher, you need to go back. It's too late. Nothing can be done. But Jesus keeps going. Jesus has no fear of death. And entering the room where, where Jairus' daughter is, he said to the little girl, ever so lovingly, ever so tenderly, little girl, I said, you arise. And how fast did she get up? Immediately, the girl got up and began walking. So it's in these moments where Jesus is healing Simon's mother-in-law, a, you know, a family friend, where Jesus is raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. We get a complete representation of who Jesus is and why he's coming. 
Jesus is sovereign over sin and death and sickness. But he's motivated by love and compassion for people. To Jairus' daughter, when he so gently and softly whispers to the girl to get up, Jesus talks to her like a father would to his daughter. Jairus was incapable of doing anything for her. But Jesus is the true and better father. He lovingly calls us all out of death and into life. Further on in Mark, and again we'll get to this, Jesus is moved with pity. That's the word used in the scripture for a leper and heals him of disease. So there's family members. There's people who are healed as Jesus is moved out of pity. The people that Jesus treats as father as he heals them. He's king of the earth. He's lord of all, and, and surely that's to be revealed during his earthly mission. But what's the underlying motivation? Why did Jesus come to earth? Why was he incarnated as a man? He came to be served, not to be served, but to serve. He did it out of love. He did it because he wanted to be a physician for sinners and for people who were well. So this love for sinners really lies at the center of everything. Jesus, in Philippians, it says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be God's. made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of God. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. As Jesus incarnated himself, he became a man, subject to all the limitations that we have as people. And at the same time, he remained fully God. And he came to offer us a cure for our spiritual death. And he makes it clear through his life that those who seek healing, any who would seek healing, any who seek him will be healed when you give a new life, and a new body, when he comes to his story. I think the danger, though, is that we can't think that because we seek him, because we go and ask him for healing, that we have anything to do with healing ourselves. Can any of the people in the stories of healing that we've seen, can they take any of the credit for being healed? Did any of them partner with Jesus in the process? Of course not. And, and taken, to ex- taken to its extreme, can a dead person even ask to be healed? So if we're more spiritually sick and more spiritually dead than any physical ailment, that can affect our bodies. Are we really partnering with Jesus in any way in our salvation and in our rescue and our spiritual healing? Of course not. We're subject completely to the grace of God. Our most common folly kind of in Southern religious culture is that we can somehow bring about our own remedy for our own sickness and it can be our own antidote. Please don't succumb to the idea that your good works and your moralism and your good deeds will somehow entice Jesus to rescue you or that the works and, and deeds themselves will rescue you. They won't. Don't give into the belief that you don't need Jesus because you're not really sick. Paul says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You will fail if you attempt to rescue yourself and heal yourself. Other people here might, might think that if I can just have the right friend or the right boyfriend or the right girlfriend or the right spouse, that can be my friend. That person will, will make everything better. And for a while, I think, you probably feel that way. But I promise you, the more you get to know your friend or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse, the more you'll find out that they need someone to heal them just as badly as you do. They'll let you down. Others of you think that, that maybe you can treat the symptoms of your sickness and, and get rid of them. You can get rid of those gnawing feelings that you can this. If only I can get involved in the local volunteer organization that I and serve the homeless, or serve with the, the SPCA, or serve uh, at a school. That'll make things better. That'll make me feel better. 
of people have this gnawing lack of self-worth. I think if I can just get this promotion at work, or if I can just be a better parent, or if I can just have the right friends and be in the right social group, that will make things better. I, I think all of us have experienced that to some extent, and that it's not really true. All of us really need to stop taking Tylenol to treat our brain tumors. We, we think way too often that, that because we've popped a few pills and our headache goes away, the symptoms go away, that we've cured ourselves. But if you've done that, you probably notice that the more often you take Tylenol, the worse the headache comes back and the more you have to take it. It's because the cancer inside continues to grow. The more you self-medicate, the worse the symptoms become because you're not treating the root of the disease. And eventually, it doesn't really matter how much you take. You can pop a pill in the office. Your symptoms aren't going to go away because they're not rooted in anything that Tylenol can the cancer of sin and the rebellion against God will overtake your entire body. And that's the diagnosis for everybody. And the prognosis is the same for everybody. Sin has a 100% mortality rate. There's a solution. Turn to the cure. Turn to the remedy. Turn to Jesus. His treatment and His grace is free completely. And it's 100% effective even against the most advanced cases of sin. It's 100% effective against death. It's 100% effective for everybody who seeks it. And it's 100% effective because on the cross, Christ took the punishment that we should have received for our sin and our And because he received that wrath, our sickness and our disease have been replaced and covered by his Father's righteousness. So revel in that. Look at the cross and thank God for the best remedy in all of history. That's the sweet blood of Jesus poured out for our sakes that we might live. So let's worship Jesus with our new life. Well, let me offer, also offer a few ways that, taken from this passage, that because of the new life we have, because of the healing that we have, that as believers we can fully live out what it means to be a healed and well healed. First, if you truly believe that Jesus can heal any and all, then bring all your concerns immediately to Him. Simon, Andrew, James, and John in this story told Jesus, this is Mark's kind of catch-all with everything. They told Jesus immediately about Simon's mother as soon as they found out. Likewise, if, if you're a dead person spiritually, or if you know someone who's dead spiritually, or if you're just physically tired and sick, talk to Jesus about it. And like John said earlier, yeah, please go get the help you need from the professionals that you need. They're good people. I mean, God has given us good gifts through them. But don't go talk to your BFF and decide later on, gee, I guess I should talk to Jesus about this. Go to Jesus first. Talk to him and implore him and ask him to heal you. The Psalms say to cast all of your cares on him. Paul says in Philippians that in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. So do that. And then, then talk to your friends about it and pray with your friends about it. And, and with your friends, bring these requests to Jesus learn that Jesus has supreme authority over the physical and the spiritual world. So let's start acting on it. He's given us access to himself through the Holy Spirit. And so let's use that access. Second, let's learn from Simon's mother-in-law that when we're utterly and instantly and completely healed, we're called to posture ourselves as servants out of love for Jesus. How do we do this? The first way to become a servant is to trust fully in him. We have to repent of the sin in our life that causes death and believe that Jesus is the one 
able to heal and wash away the sin. In addition, to continue to become a servant, we have to make Christ our example. By his grace, he sanctifies and makes us more like him. Our healing should radically alter the way we relate to both those who are believers and those who aren't believers in Jesus. If we're healed and we're now clothed with the righteousness of Christ, a spirit of service, a spirit of love should permeate every one of our relationships simply because we recognize and love what Jesus has already done for us. We're indebted to what he's done for us, and so we can do nothing but tell others about it and treat others as Jesus will. The spirit of service and love should be so far-reaching, so radical, that it can really only be explained by what Christ has done for us, as the world looks to how we live. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only into his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Some people even say, we learned this in Journey to Christ, some people say that a better translation of that verse might be, to remove the not only but also construct and just say, let each of you look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And that's extreme, to completely give up who you are to serve other people, to completely put your interests aside for the sake of others. How do we do that? Well, it's by God's grace, for sure. But practically, gather together and pray for one another, cook meals for one another, run errands for one another, share money and resources with one another as anyone has need as it talks about us. That's how we care and serve a fellow brother or fellow sister who can heal us. How do we care enough for people who don't know Christ, who haven't yet been spiritually healed by Jesus? I'd say, do the same things. Do the same things that Jesus would do for you. Share meals with them. Invite them into your home. Go into their home. For those of you who are here and don't know Jesus, we love you. We want to be your friend. There's no ulterior motive. We want to serve you like Jesus served. And of course, tell those who don't know that the kingdom is available to anyone who would seek it. That Jesus is the one who can fill all of the dissatisfactions and longings of life. That's not to say that, that somehow Jesus magically cures you of, of every problem and every ailment that, that you know, eats at you. But at the most fundamental level, at the only level that really matters for all of eternity, Jesus will make you whole, unlike anything else. So this is, this is my plea. If you know Jesus, believe in him and love him and trust him to heal you and believe that he has healed you, and then act as if you have been healed. Go to him with your concerns. Go to him with your problems and with everything immediately. Ask the Holy Spirit to mold you into a servant because of the worshipful love that you have for Jesus. If you don't yet know and worship Jesus, I plead to you again, it's the same. Inside of you, there's this growing sickness that leads to death. And there's nothing that you yourself on your own can do. Jesus, though, can heal you, and he will if you seek it. So if you don't know Jesus, get to know him. Start following him. Ask him to heal you. Then come and worship him for who he is, for the Son of God, for the ultimate healer. Just to close, there's some irony in all of this. And the irony is that, that we're cured. We gain life so that we can lose our life. Paul said that he didn't account his life of any value, nor as precious to himself. Jesus told us that whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. 
So just as we close, give up on your efforts to cure your disease. Just allow your life to be lost in the arms of Jesus. He'll give you life. He'll give you life abundantly. Jesus, you're the healer.